All right, we are in John chapter 1. John chapter 1. John tells us in the 20th chapter that he wrote this gospel, this account of the life and ministry of Jesus that we might believe. We might believe. And to build that argument that we might believe, John gives his own introduction to Jesus in these first 18 verses. First, he introduced Jesus as the Word, the eternal Son of God, who has always existed, who created all things. Second, he introduced him to us as the light, that Jesus loved humanity, and he shined his light into the darkness of our world, offering us eternal life. And finally, as we looked at last week, Jesus added humanity to his divinity so that all humanity could witness his light. Well, what did they see? John tells us in the Word, verse 14 of John chapter 1, verse 14, and the Word was made flesh, became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory indeed, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. What did we see? We did see glory. Glory was full of grace and truth, just like He had always claimed. And so John closes now his introduction to Jesus by explaining what it was like to experience that grace and that truth. So verse 14, we'll read, and then we'll pick up our study in verse 16. Verse 14, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of Him and cried, saying, this was He of whom I spake. He that comes after me is preferred before me, for He was before me. And then John says this, and of his fullness have all we received in grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. John starts off by explaining mankind's experience of God's glory through the incarnation, he says, of his fullness have all we received in grace for grace. He says, we experienced a grace that never runs out. Of his fullness, that he's full of grace and truth, but then he says, out of the full contents of grace and truth that Jesus was filled with, he says, all of us have received. From out of all the grace and truth that John observed, He says, I know it's glory, not just because I saw it or I watched it, but because he bestowed all of that grace and all of that truth upon all of us who believed upon him. All of us experienced all of it. Now, it's interesting when he says all of us have, because that means that John's saying there's no such thing as an elite group of believers. He's not saying, you know, I'm the apostle John, and I had this experience, and If you're an apostle, you can have that experience too, but you're not, so you won't. No, all of us have experienced that. There's no separation between groups in the body of Christ. There's not a priesthood that's more holy or a priesthood that's more close to God than a laity who's not. No, all of us have received all that Jesus is. Now, when John says this, he gives us the sense that he had come to recognize that he had nothing But then Jesus offered him something that would be forever his, something that he could never duplicate on his own, but he would never need to duplicate it because it would never, ever run out. 
He says, and all of this fullness of Christ, the grace and truth we received. And then he explains, and grace for grace. So we received all the fullness of God's grace, all the fullness of God's truth. And then on top of that, grace for grace. Literally, grace in place of grace. What it means is that there is a constant, fresh, and abounding supply of new grace to take the place of whatever grace we have just experienced. So you say right now, okay, Lord, I need grace right now. I need your unmerited favor in my life. And the Lord gives it to you, and then he's ready to give you more and more and more and more for whatever, whatever the need is. J.C. Ryle said, therefore, it is an unfailing, abundant grace continually filling up and supplying all of our need. Isn't that awesome? God's favor, his unmerited favor, his grace that's lavished upon us, it's like a stack of pancakes that never stops coming. (laughs) Now, that kind of pancake experience would be yummy at first if you like pancakes, but it would destroy you if you just kept on eating every time a new stack came in. But grace... But you can never have enough slapjacks of grace, can you? You can never have enough of that because we always need it. We always need grace, don't we? That's why we call it amazing. If you're a believer, God is offering you through Jesus grace over and over and over, and over, and over, and over again. Stop and think about that for a moment. Because if that's not your experience, John says Jesus didn't hold anything back. He says we saw it. We saw that he was full of grace and truth, and then we received it, all of it. So, If that's not your experience, since this unfathomable grace, this unending grace that never runs out, if that's not your experience in your relationship with God, then I need to ask you, and you need to ask yourself, is there any way your relationship with God isn't on the basis of grace? Like, is there any way that you're relating to God not on the basis of grace? Because if the answer is, well, well, no, I mean, I know I can't just do whatever I want, so I, I, you know, I've got to find some way to kind of make it back into his good graces. If there's any way that you're relating to God like that, then you need to stop. Because that's not what Jesus offered you. It would be like, it'd be like somebody coming to you and saying, hey, here's a, a free home, you know, no mortgage, don't worry about it. You don't even have to pay property taxes, nothing, just enjoy it. And then you, you show up, like your neighbor comes over and says, hey, I, I had this house, but I'm paying it off. It's all paid off. You don't have to pay anything. And it's like you would come over and you'd, you'd bring a check because your dog pooped on his yard. Or like you didn't mow your lawn correctly. Or might be saying, Pastor Will, my sin is nothing like that. I understand. I'm just trying to give you a picture. Like there, it makes no sense, though, to go over there and to give the neighbor a check. Well, here's a mortgage. Like, what do you mean the mortgage? Well, I know I don't owe you a mortgage, but I mean the dog, my yard job, I hit your sprinkler. 
That is not what Jesus offered you. He didn't say, I'll pay your house off, but man, if you ever, your dog ever comes over in my yard. If you ever don't take care of the lawn, if you hit my sprinkler system, we're not talking until you make up for it. Do you understand? I mean, I know I'm using silly examples, but do you kind of get an idea of what it's kind of like? That's not what Jesus offered you. He came full of grace and full of truth. And when you receive him, you get grace in place of grace in place of grace. So yeah, but I, I got grace yesterday for that. And he's like, okay, so now you get new grace for today. Yeah, but I got grace for that an hour ago. Okay, now you got new grace for it because you blew it again. You say, that's too good to be true. I guess that's where faith comes in. Right? Now, some say that if you put that much emphasis on grace, it's going to lead people to pervert the truth. I remember I had a conversation with a pastor once, and he had been accused. He was not a harsh man. He was a godly man. He was a, a loving man. But he'd been accused of just being kind of a hell, fire, and brimstone preacher. And I asked him one time, I said, why don't you ever teach on grace? I mean, you get phenomenal Bible studies on holiness and obedience and righteousness and service and love, loving one another, marriage and giving and serving and all those things. I said, but I said, I don't really ever hear you teach on grace or justification or God's love. And he looked me in the eye and he said, if I did that, people would do whatever they want. That is never the result of understanding grace. Never. Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. Paul has told Titus, he said, hey, when you preach, tell people, don't do this, don't do this, live this way, don't live that way, treat people this way, don't treat people that way. And explains why he has all the live this way, don't live this way. He says in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, not just some men, not just a select group of men, but all men. And what is this grace that brings salvation? What does it teach us? It teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace teaches me to look for Jesus. It teaches me that I want to see Jesus. It teaches me that it's about knowing Jesus. Do you remember when, when, in Philippians, when Paul says, you know, I left all that old life behind? And what do you say he left it behind for? I, I think sometimes we, I know, I don't think we confuse the world. Like the world thinks, well, Christians want like a certain kind of government, or Christians want a certain kind of culture. Or Christians want a certain type of behavior. And because of what we communicate, they misunderstand. I think sometimes we don't understand. 
Paul says, I didn't leave, he didn't say I left that all behind so that my country would be fixed or I left that all behind so that my culture would be fixed. He says that I may know him. I mean, it's, it's not complex. It's all about relationship. It's all about entering into a union with Christ, knowing him. That's it. Everything else is trash. All of it. Count it but dung that I may know him. Power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings. The grace of God teaches me to look for him because I want to be with him. I want to see him. I want to know him better. So I deny ungodliness. I deny worldly lusts. I deny hatred. I deny unkindness. I deny all those things because, you know, I don't, I just want him. I think it was John Cooper. I might be misquoting, but years ago, probably a decade now, maybe even longer, there was a very famous worship leader that kind of came out and said, hey, I'm I don't believe anymore, you know, I, I'm, I'm de- I've deconstructed my faith, I don't believe anymore. Um, and, and largely it was based on all the suffering that he had seen. He, had, he said, I've traveled to lots of places, I've gotten to know different cultures, different religions, all this kind of stuff, and I just, I can't reconcile the suffering I see and hell and all this kind of stuff with what the Bible claims. And so I'm not a believer anymore. And John Cooper, in reply, To sum it up, he said, it's, it's pretty arrogant to come out and say that you of all humankind are qualified. You've had so much experience, so much exposure. You're therefore qualified to say that your answer matters more than anyone else's. And then he gave example after example of people all throughout history who had seen all the same things that that individual had seen but came to an exact opposite conclusion. Not being God, not having all knowledge, not knowing everything, and what I do say I do know based on revelation, so therefore not coming from me. In my inability, when I look at those two situations and try to see how is it possible for two human beings to have equal exposure and to come to completely different conclusions. The only answer is, is that each of those individuals, had, knowing Jesus and following Jesus was something very different. Do you understand? Like that's the only conclusion that can be, is that knowing Jesus, following Jesus for these two individuals was something different, where one person was disappointed and the other person was satisfied. I remember one of our elders uh, telling me a story about an individual who had professed Christ and had, you know, gone to church, walked with the Lord, and, and then left the faith and had said, though, many years later, he said, I miss Jesus. And I thought, what a weird thing to say. If you, if you miss, you miss, that'd be like saying you miss your, your fictional unicorn. You know, I mean, like, what is that? I don't understand that. I'm not trying to mock when I say that. I just, if you don't believe, then what is there to miss? 
My mom said I used to walk around with a blanket all the time when I was a little kid. And eventually there was a day the blanket had to go. I sure missed that blanket that day. I do not as an adult. I got a new one as an adult. <laughs> no, do you understand what I'm saying? Like it's, it's just a blanket. There's a whole lot more important things. I don't miss my blanket anymore. Why, why would you miss something that you, you thought was childish and, you know, not, you placed importance on something that you think is just not that important? Well, you experienced something, apparently. If you're frustrated with God or you're frustrated with Christianity or you're dissatisfied with your spiritual life, I mean, it, what does following Jesus mean to you? Is it about knowing him or is it something else? I mean, for that one individual who, was, who denied the faith, he's, it was something else, clearly. So what is it for you? Paul says that I may know him. And when you, you're receiving all of his grace and you know him, Jesus is never going to lead you astray. So you can never go wrong talking about grace, emphasizing grace. John doesn't bring it up again here because he already talked about the truth earlier. He's full of grace and truth. That they go side by side. You can't have one without the other, right? Like you can't say, Jesus is going to give me all the grace in the world and he's going to lie to me. <laughs> you know, I love you. You're my child. I've got good plans for you. And yeah, I know you hate your marriage. So just go divorce them and, and go find someone who makes you happy. That's never going to happen. I've, I've had people tell me, oh, Jesus said it was okay for me to have an affair. No, he would not. No, that's... You have latched onto something that's not knowing Jesus. Knowing Jesus is not your pursuit because when you know him, well, the grace of God teaches you something different, teaches you to run to him. Doesn't mean that your flesh doesn't crave things, doesn't mean you don't fall sometimes. But you're not going to say, well, Jesus told me this was okay. Receiving all of Jesus' grace, emphasizing grace, that will never lead us astray. Now, this was life-changing for John and the others who observed Jesus because they had never related to God like this before they met Jesus. They related to God by the law, verse 17. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. On Mount Sinai, God gave man a means to have a relationship with him. He did. The law was a beautiful gift without which no one would have been able to approach God in a close way. No one would have been able to. The law also did a wonderful job preparing humanity for the coming of the Messiah. Everything in the law points to Jesus, and it shows us our need for a Savior. It shows us how we fall short of God's standard. And it drove all those who believed to look forward to the day Messiah would appear. But despite all the good things that the law did, it did limit how much of God's grace and truth a person could experience. For example, under the law, you and I, if we were under the law, we could not go into the presence of God unless you were the high priest. And then you could only do it once a year on the Day of Atonement. 
I would say that that was not necessarily a pleasant experience because you had to do so much work that day to make sure that you didn't go in there with any sin. That you weren't tainted in any way by anything around you. So you couldn't get into the presence of God. And whatever closeness you could experience also had limitations. Because one sacrifice didn't allow you to come forever close to God. You knew the moment you left that you would be back again. That you wouldn't just be able to be with God the whole time. But instead you'd have to come back with a new sacrifice. Because you knew you'd blow it again. Multiple sacrifices were required because none of them could purge all of my sin. Look back in Hebrews chapter 10. We read the first 10 verses in our scripture reading, but the first four verses is what I want to re-examine here. Hebrews 10. The writer in chapter 9, he says, we have this amazing new covenant. He says, so Christ, verse 28, was once offered to bear the sins of many. What an awesome thing. That was, no one had experienced that before. You could never have an experience, even on the Day of Atonement, when they would come and they, that would be the day when all the sin nationally would be forgiven. Even then, you knew you'd be back the next year. So this was a new idea that Christ was once offered to bear the sins of a ton of people. Why did that happen? Verse 1 of chapter 10, for the law, having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never, never, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually, make the comers thereunto perfect. It didn't matter how, how much you meant it one year or one time. It didn't matter. Every single time you brought an offering, you were reminded of the fact that it wasn't enough because you had to do it again at some point. So it didn't take away sins. It just reminded you that they were still there. They were just temporarily covered up, temporarily dealt with. Verse 2, for then would they not have ceased to be offered? If they worked forever, then why did they keep offering them? If, if it worked, then they wouldn't have to keep offering them. Because the worshipers once purged, by one offering purged, should have then had no more conscience of sins. If it worked with one, then there should have been three, my mind free. I'm, I'm not in sin anymore. I'm in Christ. I'm in the Lord. I'm, I'm free forever. But that wasn't the case. No, verse 3, but in those sacrifices, there's a remembrance again, a reminder made of sins every year. Why? Because it's not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away, remove sins. And so one could not experience what John said they did when Jesus came, and they received him, and he gave them all his grace and all his truth. One could not, under the law, experience all of God's love because one could not approach God fully and closely at any moment of the day. And because of this also, because you could only come so close to God's presence, much of the worship under the law was like a shadow. Now, a shadow can be experienced. A shadow is a close silhouette to the thing that forms it. But it isn't the actual object. Think of it like this. Think of it like you 
talking to or singing to or professing your affection to your spouse or a loved one's shadow. I mean, everything you're doing is very real for you, and your spouse or your loved one is hearing all of it because their shadow means they are nearby. But it's not the same kind of connection as looking into their eyes, is it? I've done a lot of weddings in 28 years of ministry, and I always think to myself, well, I've seen it all. And then you do a wedding, you're like, I haven't seen it all. And I don't mean that in a weird way. I mean that those just be different traditions or like family passed down type of, you know, rituals that they might want to do in a wedding. Some of them are cultures that I've not experienced before. And then some of them are just like fads. With the technology we have today, everyone wants to capture everything, right? Like everything. And then share it with the world. And so this, obviously, for people who are creative and artistic, they have thought of really cool photo ops, right? And one of the things that I, I've seen sometimes at a wedding is the couples who are getting, the couples getting married, they'll have this moment where, like, the guy is standing here at the back to a wall, and then there's a corner, and there's the other wall, and the bride's there, and they hold hands, and they take a picture of that, even though they can't see each other. Now, they, you look at the picture, and you can see it when you look at the picture, but they can't see each other in that moment because they don't want to see each each other until she comes down the aisle. Well, there's a reason you don't do the wedding like that. There's a reason that when the door opens and the bride walks in, that sometimes I got to turn to the groom and say, hold it together. Because this is going to happen face to face. Every step she takes down that aisle is a step toward him where she's saying, I choose you. When he takes her hand as she's coming close and he takes her hand and they come up and they look at each other and they profess their vows, they're saying, I choose you. That's not something to be done to a shadow. There's intimacy there. It's why often the groom will become emotional. It's not the same kind of connection as when you look into someone's eyes. The blessings of an, a shadowy interaction are limited by its very nature. And so the law in the same way is by its very nature limited. It's not the fullness of grace and truth. John says the law was given by Moses. Moses didn't create the law. It didn't come by Moses. He didn't bring it. He was an intermediary. God used him as an intermediary to communicate to man how they could come close. But because the new covenant has a better intermediary, one who's more than just an intermediary, the benefits are far better than anything Moses could offer. For it says, the law was given by Moses, and grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. If your translation says, but grace and truth, you may have noticed it's in italics because there's no but there, there's an and there. In other words, John's not complaining about the law. He's like, ah, Moses gave us this thing, but Jesus. That's not what he's saying. He's saying it served a purpose. But he's saying that what Jesus did is he fulfilled everything the law pointed to 
And through that, he removed all the limitations. You see, in contrast to Moses giving the law, it says grace and truth came. It actually came. It wasn't something that was handed to us by an intermediary or someone who had to explain it as an intermediary. It came to us by Jesus Christ. Jesus was better than an intermediary. He was God himself being the intermediary, bringing himself close to us so we could experience the divine reality, his grace and truth without limitations. Now, that wasn't possible under the law. In fact, it's not possible from any source other than Jesus. Verse 18, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. Literally, God, no one has ever seen. God, no one has ever seen. And I say, wait a second, Moses saw God. It said, Moses, the Lord said, I talked to Moses face to face. We know other people had visions. Isaiah said, I saw the Lord. What is he talking about? Well, the word seen here, it doesn't just mean the act of vision, but it means the mental discernment that accompanies it. In other words, any vision of God prior to the incarnation was partial. It was not an experience of the fullness of grace and the reality of the divine. But that changed with the incarnation. It was not just a glimpse. When John says we beheld his glory, he doesn't say we got a, we got a snapshot. I'm not sure what he's fully like, but I got a snapshot. No, he says, we got it all. Everything changed with the incarnation. The only begotten son, which is in the bosom of the father, he has declared him. Now, if you look this up on Blue Letter Bible, you're not going to find what I'm about to tell you. But when you look at the majority of manuscripts, they read this way. The only begotten God which is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Not son, the only begotten God. Now, John doesn't need to tell us that here. We already know from verse one, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. So it's not like this is a new idea. But when you read the church fathers and when you look at the majority of manuscripts, that's what it says. The one who was always with God, who has existed from all eternity, which is in the bosom of the Father, literally, the one who exists from all eternity. The one we saw in front of us existed from all eternity, the only begotten God. And how did he exist from all eternity? He says, in the bosom, the place of love, the place of closeness with the Father. One commentator says, they do not only see each other, know or speak with each other, they are in each other's embrace. What does the Father say every time he speaks from heaven when Jesus is on the earth? This is my what? Beloved son. Isn't that interesting? Never fails to mention that this is his beloved son. John told us in the first few verses that the Son and the Father had been in perfect union and communion for all eternity. Well, unlike any of those partial experiences people had in their visions of God, Jesus had an eternal experience of the fullness of grace and the reality of the divine. And therefore, he could bring us that experience in full. And he did. It says he, he has declared. 
him. The word declare literally means to lead out. It came to be used in language to make something fully known. We get our word exegesis from this. When you say, oh, he's, he's going to exegete the word, it means I'm not going to put my ideas into the scripture. I'm going to let the scripture speak for itself and then explain it to you. Eisegesis is putting into the scripture what I wanted to say or making it, using it for what I'm trying to communicate. Exegesis is explaining what it says and then telling you what it means. It means to reveal the meaning of something and then to interpret it. Well, that's what Jesus did with the Father. He revealed and then interpreted the Father to us. He led the Father out for all of us to see. Jesus brought God close, John says, for all of us to see. And he says, by receiving him, we experience the fullness of God's grace and the reality of the divine. And if you receive him, you can experience the fullness of God's grace and the reality of the divine. Isn't that awesome? That's why I went on that whole topic about knowing Jesus. Like, what is Christianity to you? Why are you here? Why do you read your Bible? Why do you pray? Why, why do you follow Jesus? Paul says it's that I may know him. Well, when that's your goal, if my goal is I just want to know him, well, then when he says deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me, it's not a problem to go and climb up next to the cross where he's at. That's the challenge. It's communicated to us, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. I, okay, but therein lies death. Yes. But therein lies Jesus. So what are you following? What are you after? What is it that you want? If you want God to give you a good life, I don't know what his plan for you might be. You might find that, you might not. Obviously, good life can have about 10,000 interpretations. But if your goal is to know Jesus, you'll find him even if you lose everything. So what are you after? What do you want? The Bible tells us that you and I can know God that we could share in the union and communion that they've had for all eternity. And that's my hope and my desire for you. It was Paul's desire for the church at Ephesus. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, Paul says, I pray this for you guys. I bow my knees unto the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, for this cause, this reason. This is what I pray for you. Verse 17 that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love, that you just know so much about his love, that you being taught it and receiving it, that you would be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. 
Isn't that what John said he, he experienced? Paul says, that's my experience and I want it for you too. So, do you know the love of Christ this morning? Like you're, you're a believer, but do you know the love of Christ? And are, let, are you letting him fill you with his fullness? Or are you after something else? Are you chasing something else? I promise you this, if you're chasing something else, you're gonna get disappointed at some point. Whether it's something in your own life or something in someone else's life, you're gonna see it, you're gonna get frustrated with God, you're gonna get disappointed. It, it's somehow going to be not what you're looking for. But if your goal is knowing Him, being in that union with Him, Nothing can disappoint that. Because he says, if you seek me, you'll find me. He's not hiding. Do you know the love of Christ? And are you letting him fill you with its fullness? As the team comes up, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. But before we do, this ceremony, this ritual that we do, the first of the month, first Sunday of the month, we, it's for believers. In other words, it's not just something to do because you're here. When we take that bread and we eat it and the, the cup and we drink it, we're saying something, we're making a declaration that this is, this is for me. So if you don't believe it, what I'm saying to you now is not saying don't do this, don't dare do this. What I'm saying is receive Christ and then join us. Receive Christ and then participate with us in this. Share this moment that we're gonna spend some time with Jesus. Because if you have not received Christ, whatever conception you might think you have of God, whatever conception you have of God, it cannot be correct. It's impossible. You've never seen Him. You don't know Him. You've not been in union with Him. So, so your conception of Him cannot be correct. You don't have the information. Your experience of Him cannot be the reality of the divine. No matter how much you've thought about it, no matter how religious you've been, it cannot be because you have not seen him. Your ideas, your thoughts, your experience is something of human origin. Whether it's of religion or philosophy, whether from yourself or others, it is of human origin. And I guarantee you, it's certainly not 100% grace and 100% truth. But here's the good news. It's easy to change that. Because John said in chapter 1, verse 12, but to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to be called the children of God. And you can enter into this experience if you receive Jesus, where he dwells in your hearts and he grounds you in his grace and truth and you can have an experience of the divine reality. And so we're gonna stand and pray. And when I do, I'm gonna give you an opportunity to make that decision. So let's all stand. Lord Jesus, you know where everyone is at today. You know their struggles, Lord. You know, you know if they're pursuing you or if they're pursuing something else. So, Lord, this morning I pray that everyone here would, Lord, have an understanding by your Spirit, communicate an understanding of your love, of your grace, Lord, that we might leave here today experiencing all that fullness. Not in any way relating to you legally, that somehow we've got we've to do something to, to get in your good graces and that thereby you owe us something. But instead, Lord, that we just accept that you love us, that you're good, that you want to bless us, 
to receive all that and then just to follow you. Lord, as we remember you this morning, draw us all close to that. And then with every eye closed, every head bowed, if you're here this morning and you have never received Jesus, would you just lift your hand up and say, I'm receiving Christ? Because I'd like to pray with you as you begin that journey. Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. He wants us to make it known publicly that we are received him, that we're following him. So if you're receiving Christ this morning, just lift your hand high so I can pray with you before we take communion together. Anybody this morning before we enter into our time of communion with the Lord? Well, Lord, we thank you so much for your grace. Now we give this time to spend time with you, to sit with you, to remember you in Jesus' name, amen.